Greetings, all you 99 percenters. Uh, this is your host, Dr. Jack Rasmus, and this is Alternative Visions. Okay, uh, the news today. Silicon Valley Bank. Yeah, it's in the news, big time. What's Silicon Valley Bank? Well, Silicon Valley means tech industry, right? It's this key bank in the Texan tech industry out here in California, right, uh, that we have a major run on and that has been shut down. What's going on? What's the significance of this? Uh, is this a precursor or a canary in the tech coal mine here going on? What's happening? Well, what's happening is the tech industry uh, is in trouble. Uh, it's laying off workers and going to lay off more. You see, during during the COVID uh, uh, recession here, uh, the tech sector kind of kept going. It plowed right through it. And uh, it kept adding uh, levels of expansion and investment. And, of course, we got these booms, tech booms going on. Latest is all this fashionable uh, alter- uh, artificial intelligence startups and so forth. So uh, it got overextended. And uh, what's happening now is that it's beginning to contract for lots of reasons that we get into, maybe. And that means that uh, it's not borrowing money from banks like Silicon Valley Bank. We'll just call it SVB. (coughs) Excuse me. And uh, they're not making any money. No one's borrowing anything. Why? Because interest rates are too high. You know, the Fed benchmark rate is like five and a quarter now. Going to six, we'll talk about that because I've been predicting, as you've been listening to the show in previous weeks, uh, that uh, Fed Fed interest rates, benchmark rates, policy rate, they call that, if it uh, starts creeping up over five, five and a half percent, uh, you got a big financial instability uh, growing here. And uh, in recent weeks, they've been talking about uh, 6%. 6% is going to go to, well, we're beginning to see the fracturing of uh, the system, the financial system. Not so much the big commercial banks yet, you know, but there's, there's really two banking systems in this country. One, the regulated commercial banks, and then all these other different kinds of what we call uh, shadow banks. Uh, and... Uh, you know, specialty banks like SVB and hedge funds and private equity and peer-to-peer lending, all this stuff, right? And they're unregulated, you see. <clears throat> and they don't have a depositor base. Depositor meaning retail people, you and I putting money in checking, saving accounts, right? They don't have that. Uh, so they're more, more unstable and they're less regulated as well. Okay, so uh, the crises always start in the shadow bank system because they are uh, unregulated, they get overextended, uh, and uh, they are dependent upon commercial bank lending. Uh, And that's why we have often, when you have a real crisis in the shadow banking sector, hedge funds, whatever, uh, it spills over the commercial banking sector because they loan the money to the hedge funds and the SVBs and so forth, and uh, when they stop lending money to them, that's when these shadow banks collapse. 
Well, what's happening is that interest rates are rising and uh, uh, investors and startups that had their money in SVB started pulling it out. Right, a run on the bank, you see. Not in 1930s style where, you know, you got uh, average guys running uh, to the bank and knocking on the door, give me my checking or savings, right? Now, that, that's a, what's called a retail run on the bank. This, this is like a, a, a wholesale run on the bank. Investors, other banks, other, other businesses pulling their money out, you see. Because hedge fund banks, uh, uh, I mean, and uh, shadow banks, uh, uh, you know, they depend on uh, deposit, rich depositors, right? Institutional depositors, other banks, and so forth. They don't have retail <clears throat> uh, depositors like commercial banks do. They give them a buffer, you see. So uh, uh, when when you got a run on these, these shadow banks, uh, the run is uh, investor to bank kind of pulling their money out. And that's what's happening with SVB. There's startups and so forth who had uh, put their money in SVB or borrowed partly from SVB and, you know, venture, venture funds and so forth, uh, uh, they, they pull their money out uh, because they see it's a problem. So there's no money or, or there's less funds in SVB and the interest rates are rising. They get caught in the middle. And then other big banks uh, say, no, SVB, we're not going to backfill the hole for you, right? Because rates are rising and we're, we're pulling in our uh, lending horns, too, and, uh, until we see what happens with this Fed rate hike situation. So you know, all these forces come together, and SVB is in trouble. Uh, its depositors start pulling their money out. It's startups and businesses, a lot of startups and businesses in SVB. And... Uh, they end up with not enough. You see, you got to understand how the monetary system, banking system works. It's called fractional uh, reserves banking. In other words, the people put their money in, whether it's commercial bank or shadow bank, they, they put their money in, in the bank. The bank pays them usually a pittance and in interest, right? But certainly lo- pays them less than the bank then lends out the money. Uh, at a much higher interest rate to other businesses, you know, expanding and borrowing and so forth. And so the profits of of the bank is the spread between what they pay the depositors, which is low, and what they charge uh, uh, their customers that they lend high. That's called the spread between them. But it's fractional. In other words, they lend out like 98% of all the deposits that they get. They lend it out. And everything works until the depositors come and say, uh, uh, well, we want our money out. Well, the bank says, I only got 2%. I loaned it all out. That's what banks do. I I don't have cash reserves on hand. I just have a fraction of the reserves on hand that I can pay you. And the depositor says, I don't care. I gave you that money. It's my money. Give me my money back. Well, I'll tell you, folks, once you give a bank your money, it's no longer your money. It's their money, legally. Yeah. Uh, They can freeze their distribution and not give you your money back. That's true in, in all lending. But the fractional reserve banking system works. It stimulates growth because they loan out 98%, in some cases like 99%. 
hardly have any reserves. <clears throat> it used to be the uh, the banks had to keep 20% reserves way back when. Uh, but uh, the government and the Fed uh, kept lowering that, lowering that, lowering that. So the reserves that they got a hold in case customers come and say, we want the money, is very, very low. It's a small fraction of what those banks lend out. So when you've got a run on the bank and they come and say, you know, your depositors say, we want our money, they don't have it. Oh, the word gets around and everybody comes running and say, hey, hey, where's our money? Oh, we don't have it. We're a bank. We loaned it out long term. You know, it's, we're giving it to these other companies. You know, and they only pay it back after 10 years or 20 years even. You know, um, we don't have it. It's all been committed. We're, we're solid. We're solvent. Right? But we just don't have it. That's the way the system works. Well, it's good for expanding. But, boy, when you have a crisis, it's a big problem fractional reserve banking uh only in crisis periods it becomes a problem well you know svb is in a crisis period people want their money they don't got it it spreads and the big question is uh does that knowledge among investor depositors uh spread to other institutions you know you may have another silicon valley bank 2.0 you know that doesn't have any problem financially. It's not a, it, it, you know, it's it's solvent. It's not a problem, but because it loaned everything out, right? Word gets around, and the depositors in that other bank say, "Well, gee, maybe the whole industry is in trouble. We, you know, we gotta go get our money, get it out." And they they do the same thing, and uh, the same thing happens. They don't, they don't have all of it to give to the depositors on demand. That's not how it works. So that's called contagion. When it goes from a bank that's really in trouble, mismanaged or whatever, to the industry and uh, the rest of the banking system and people want their money, the, 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 the run on it spreads even to solid banks and lenders who become unsolid because fractional reserve banking, right? And uh, then the crisis spreads, you see. Uh, that's what happened in 2008. You know, you had you had a hedge fund, Bear Stearns Hedge Fund, which was financed uh, by J.P. Morgan Chase. This was in the spring of 2008. In other words, uh, the hedge fund was losing money and wanted to uh, short-term borrow money from Chase, which had been given it money to expand in the in the in in the housing industry, right? Big expansion, borrowing, borrowing more and more. So, you know, Bear Stearns uh, said, "Oh, JP, uh, we we need uh, more money here to keep functioning." And JP Morgan Chase said, "Nope, we're not going to give you any more." Whoa! Then they don't have any money, and they're investors realize this and they start running on Bear Stearns and say, hey, we want our money. Bear Stearns goes, well, we don't got it. Bear Stearns goes bankrupt. Yeah. The Fed steps in to bail it out. You know how the Fed bailed out Bear Stearns in 2008? They gave $30 billion to Chase to buy it. Well, Chase didn't want to buy the bank, but they did want to buy their very uh, um, lucrative downtown Manhattan office building. 
So Chase gets the office building for free, gets $30 billion from the government to buy, buy out Bear Stearns, you know, keeps the office building and lets Bear Stearns go under. And then we had a similar repeat going on later in the year uh, in the uh, uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac uh, that the government had to bail out, and then the Washington Mutual, and then the Lehman Brothers, and then the AIG, et cetera, et cetera, right? So the point is it can spread from one bank to another bank if the commercial banks say, oh, we're not going to backstop you anymore. Well, we'll see whether Silicon Valley Bank had some big backstoppers. Uh, you know, when the commercial side has said, no, no more, right? The tech industry is in trouble. Uh, you're losing money, SVB, and uh, we're just not going to uh, uh, keep giving you money uh, that you're losing. <clears throat> Oftentimes, the commercial banks, the big boys, uh, uh, precipitate a crisis in these smaller banks in order to take it over. You know, there's something they want from it. Right. Sometimes, you know, it's not. Sometimes uh, they they cause it, like uh, J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, I'm sure uh, with Bear Stearns uh, knew about the assets, those properties in Manhattan, and figured, well, maybe we can cut a deal with the Fed here. We'll let Bear Stearns go under, and we'll get that nice property. That later, uh, when the prices and commercial property rise again, uh, we'll sell and make a nice profit off of it. Anyway, this is how banks eat their own, right? Okay, so SVP is significant. We've got a contraction going going on in the, the tech industry, and layoffs are beginning in the tech industry. First first round since November, over fifty thousand people in tech have been laid off. Fifty thousand uh, last month, the data for the jobs just came off uh, twenty five thousand. Okay, so layoffs are are occurring. By the way, layoffs are also occurring in transport and warehousing and other sectors of the economy, too. Uh, the Fed rate hikes are beginning to bite, right? Uh, it's taken five percentage point hikes uh, in the base rate, the policy rate, benchmark rate for the Fed uh, to start having an impact. But layoffs are, are beginning, right? At the same time, though, you've got other sectors of the economy uh, that are still adding jobs, and that's got the Fed all perplexed. The Fed doesn't know how to deal with this, right? They're at a loss. Uh, for example, uh, today, 311,000 more jobs created. Yeah. Well, that means uh, the Fed's going to continue raising rates. In January, 517,000 jobs were added. In December, 239,000 jobs were added. So you've got a million jobs in just three months being added after the Fed has raised interest rates 5%. What's going on? It's the Fed saying to itself. <laughs> uh, well, underneath it, you've got unemployment beginning to occur finally in certain sectors, in the goods sector, the tech sector, and the goods-producing sectors where we're seeing this. Uh, where you're not seeing this, you're seeing the jobs gains, uh, is in the service sector. Well, why is that? Well, I've said because a lot of the jobs being created are part-time temp jobs, right? <clears throat> They're not hiring full-time. Look at the sectors uh, where jobs are growing, right? Leisure, 
and hospitality, restaurants, bars, so forth, retail, right? Last month, 105,000 in leisure and hospitality, accommodations, hotels, all that stuff, right? <clears throat> retail, 50,000. Half of it is in uh, uh, restaurants, bars, and retail. Half of the 300,000. Now, those industries do not hire full-time people. They hire part-time people. So half of the growth in these huge numbers is hiring part-time. Well, why are businesses hiring part-time? Well, to some extent, these industries, these service industries, are converted to part-time employment. Why? Because it's cheaper. Part-timers don't get benefits, you see, and that's 25% of your total wage bill, benefits at least. They don't get benefits. And you work in part-time, you don't have to pay them overtime. Instead of a full-time worker that you may have charge overtime, you know, you have two part-timers who never make it to overtime. And uh, part-time workers can be gotten by employers cheaper. Because maybe these people are just getting a second job. A lot of second and third job creation going on. But for the government statistics, it doesn't matter if it's part-time or full-time. It's just counted as a new job. That's all. So we got this growth in jobs going on in the service sector, half of it retail and leisure, hospitality, bars, and so forth, right? And the Fed can't figure that out. Why is there so much? Well, come on, Fed. All you got to do is realize they're coming out of a recession, a COVID recession. These industries are hiring, uh, but they're being very cautious. They don't want to hire full-time people. They're hiring part-time people just in case the thing crashes again. That's like a business cycle hiring phenomenon going on in services. On top of the fact that some of these services have converted structurally long-term to part-time work anyway. So the growth in the service sector jobs, you know, uh, have to do with the change in the nature of capitalist industry here in the 21st century to all part-time temp jobs. You know. And they're still hiring, coming out slowly, coming out of uh, the recession. Yeah. And you've got other industries, major industries, you know, like transportation uh, and other manufacturing coming, not so much manufacturing because it didn't really contract that much during the COVID recession, right? Uh, but, you know, other industries like transport, trucking, railroads, right? They never hired people back to where they had employment levels in 2019. Those industries only hired people, some of the people back, and are operating now at less than full employment and have been. I mean, look at the railroad industry. Only 70% labor force today compared to what they had before the COVID crash. 70%. Now you expect them to lay off when they've already not hired back 30%, you know, they're having a hard time generating the layoffs in those industries. They, meaning the Fed, watching, you know, uh, it raises rates and, uh, you know, you're not getting big layoffs in those uh, goods producing sector, right? 
because they're already running skinny. Yeah. And you're not getting layoffs in the services because they're just hiring part-timers. In other words, the Fed doesn't understand the, the dynamics of what's really going on in the labor market, I believe. And the government statistics uh, are skewed and distorted as to what's really going on. You know, they think it's like uh, uh, 30 years ago uh, where you raise interest rates and oh, all these industries start laying people off in manufacturing, you know, and construction and so forth. Uh, well, they, they do, but not to the extent that they used to. And then you've got the phenomenon of the labor force in the service sector uh, evolving into a part-time temp uh, arrangement where, you know, they don't lay off. Initially, as recession begins, uh, in fact, they, they, their hiring may shift from full-time to part-time as the recession early begins. And it's only when you have a deep recession that they start laying off the part-timers. But that's why the part-timers and temps are hired, you see, because they can shed them easily, more easily, once the recession really hits. Right now, you know, they're they're not shedding them. They're adding them because we're coming off of this crash you see you come off a crash and then you don't restore your employment levels you know within a year of the end of the crash you know the crash effectively ended uh, uh, early 22 right so it's 20 early 23 a year later and now you want to precipitate more layoffs well you never really Recovered to prior prior levels. Look, leisure and hospitality industry. Let's take an example. Even though it's been adding these jobs last month, half of the three hundred eleven thousand leisure and retail, right, is still down four hundred and ten thousand fewer workers compared to February twenty twenty pre COVID. Yeah, three years later. Despite all these hirings that you hear, you know, last month, after the 311,000, right? Despite that, they're still down 400,000. How about healthcare? Still down 400,000 workers. How about government? Despite all this money given to state and local government to hire, still 376,000 fewer workers compared to February 2020 today. I can go on, and I'd probably write an article on this just so people can see the data. I, all, all of these data references, by the way, are uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics Employment Situation Report, right? Uh, so, in other words, you you, you got to peel the onion. you got to look under the covers to see what are the dynamics in the different sectors of the labor market going on. But the Fed's not doing that. The Fed's just looking at it and say. <clears throat> Oh well, we got all these jobs growing in certain in the service sector. We got we got to do something uh, that really reverses this uh, and get more layoffs in the service sector. We got to get more layoffs. You see, the whole Fed strategy is about raising rates to cause layoffs. Layoffs would lead to less wages. Less wages leads to less consumption. And therefore, 
consumption is about two-thirds of the GDP, the economy. That leads to less demand for goods and services, which then businesses respond to by lowering their prices. That's the, the threat of uh, the theory here of raising interest rates to dampen the economy and therefore dampen, slow down inflation. Well, that doesn't work very well anymore. Maybe it worked 40 years ago, but it doesn't work very well because partly with the changes in the labor market I described, but also partly because over the last 40 years, industries, corporations have become more concentrated. Concentrated means fewer, bigger companies. And I could go down the list, you know, all the goods producing major sectors, you know, from from food to energy to uh, transport, right, uh, food processing, et cetera, uh, where clearly we used to have maybe a dozen or more companies. Uh, now we got three or four. That's called monopolization, you see. And that's what we have. We have more monopolistic industries. And when you are a monopoly, you can raise your prices. You can control the market and raise prices and not worry about competition undercutting you at lower prices. You know, you got a leader, a price leader that raises prices and the rest of them watch him and go ahead and follow suit. The other companies in the industry, three or four of them, right? Maybe even more, five, six, whatever. But uh, what happens is you get price gouging coming out of COVID, price gouging. In other words, they didn't sell as much and make as much money during the shutdowns. Now they're going to try to make it up. And they can raise prices because they can. And they do it. you got price gouging going on. Well, what can the Fed do about that? <coughs> Nothing. Can't do anything about price gouging. It says it can. So domestically, you know, interest rates are chronically high because you've got price gouging. And there's other factors, too. This global forces driving up what's called commodity prices, oil, energy, natural gas, gasoline, right? Commodity prices, agricultural goods, you know, uh, wheat and all the other grains and so forth. Uh, Metals of all kinds, industrial commodities, right? And that's being driven or kept high uh, by uh, the war in Ukraine and sanctions. And on top of that, speculators, financial speculators, who buy and sell the futures contracts for these industrial commodities worldwide, right? And by the way, if the dollar goes up in value, uh, so does the price of these commodities. And the dollars have gone up in value as the Fed has raised interest rates. It's a contradiction. The Fed raises interest rates to try to uh, dampen demand, but it raises the the, the value of the dollar, which raises the... uh, uh, the, the cost of global industrial commodities traded on uh, global markets, you see. So question is, is the Fed causing inflation by raising its interest rates that drives the dollar up more than it's dampening inflation by raising interest rates and crushing household demand? Well, no one's really analyzing that, I don't think. But the bottom line is the Fed, the Fed, can't get its hands around inflation. Yeah, it's having a little bit of a dampening effect, 
right? We've gone from about eight and a half percent on the CPI to six and a half percent. We'll see next week with the new CPI report what's happening here. Uh, and it, you know, it might drive it down, you know, another two percent. But the problem is, this, the lever by which the Fed tries to do this is to raise interest rates. It's raised interest rates very fast. Five percent, almost increase in interest rates in, in in just a year. I mean, that that's just the rate of that increase, not the level of it, but just the the, the pace of that is going to cause some havoc. But in terms of inflation, you know, five percent increase in interest rates, and would you get a two percent decline in the CPI? What does that mean? The Fed's going to have to raise it to 10% if they want to get it back down to their target of 2% inflation rate? It'll never happen. You know why? Because now we come back to Silicon Valley Bank. Because when the rates start hitting that ceiling of 5.5%, you start getting financial instability in the commercial and banking system. Yeah. It's a contradiction, you see. Fed has to raise interest rates to reduce inflation, but it can't reduce it very much. Has to raise interest rates more, uh, but the system has become financialized and more fragile. Fragile meaning, you know, tendency to have a financial instability event. Right, the system becomes more fragile. So when you start raising rates to six percent, uh oh. You start getting Silicon Valley banks. See, so it says between a rock and a hard place: inflation on the one end, financial instability on the other end. I predict that uh, the Fed's not going to raise interest rates above six percent. It may not even get to six percent because it will back off if it looks like we got some financial fracturing going on. It will back off. You know, it will not drive the commercial system or the financial system uh, uh, into the ground. That's the first priority, you see, to save, to bail out the banks, now shadow banks, right, which it won't regulate, which get in trouble all the time, right? Another contradiction. So the Fed's between a rock and a hard place. If it raises interest rates further to try to dampen inflation, it won't be that successful because it's mostly price gouging and global forces here uh, driving supply side. Demand side, raising interest rates uh, has a minimal effect. They're going to have to raise interest rates much higher to have a bigger effect on demand. But they won't because it'll create financial instability. Well, I wrote about this in 2017 in a book in which I predicted this contradiction. The book was entitled Central Bankers at the End of Their Ropes, subtitled Monetary Policy in the Coming Depression. Clarity Press, 2017. I think there's some reviews on my website and my blog, jackrazlis.com, website, jrproductions.com. Used to be Kiklos Productions, K Y K L O S Productions dot com. Reviews there, book reviews. There's a there's a tab on book reviews. So the Fed's between a rock and a hard place, and uh, it can't get 
layoffs going in the leisure sector. You see, it's all tied into uh, the changes in the 21st century capitalism, more financialized, more globalized, uh, and the changes in the labor markets as part of that changes. You know, the the real economy has changed. uh, You you know, you've got the labor markets are more part-time temp gig kind of work. Uh, and then financial markets have become more f- fragile. They've changed, too. Uh, monetary and fiscal policy aren't working as well, if working at all. Later today, we're going to get, uh, or maybe it's already come out, the government Biden's budget, budget right, for 2024. They always give themselves six months here. You know, it wouldn't go into effect until next October. So uh, the, the the discussions are going on. The debate amongst the elite and the two wings of the corporate party of America, Republican wing, Democrat wing, right, factions within the corporate party, single party system is what we have. Okay. Uh, so, uh, Debate's going on behind the scenes intensely here ever since Biden went and met with McCarthy, you know, the head of the House. Republicans now run the House, narrow margin, but they're running it. So uh, the Republicans want big cuts to spending, social spending, including going after Social Security, even though they say, no, yeah, behind the scenes, that's what they're doing. They want to privatize Social Security. As I talked about last week, you know. but look, Social Security has nothing to do with the annual government budget and deficit. It has nothing to do with it. It's a separate trust fund over and apart from it with its own financing. It's not part of the deficit. It's not part of the $31.5 trillion deficit, federal government deficit. You know, you should add to that $31.5 trillion, by the way, because the Federal Reserve, which is, of course, a government agency, has $9 trillion balance sheet deficit or debt, you might say. Yeah, and then there's state and local governments, $3, $4 trillion more. So you're really around $445 trillion government, all, all government, right, deficit or debt, national debt. But Social Security has nothing to do with that. Now, I'm not going to go over the whole analysis of what the situation is in Social Security. I went over that last week. Check check out last week's show. But of the trust funds, you've got the Medicare trust fund, which is stressed uh, because of the pretty much decades-long price gouging going on by health insurance companies and hospital chains. They're, they're the culprits there. Uh, so there is some stress run because of unchecked and prescription drugs, uh, un- unchecked price inflation going on there. Uh, but the retirement fund, uh, you know, is not in bad shape. And all you got to do is raise the minuscule 1.45% tax on Medicare raises it a half point, half a percent, right? 
2%. You know, that 1.45 has been what, three decades. They haven't raised that. What they have done is raise the base rate of your earnings in which they tax 1.45%. You know, it's 1.45 for an employer, 1.45 for the employee. It's a wonderful system, you know, for one, one, one and a half percent, barely, uh, you know, you get 20, 30, and 20, how long you live, years of virtually free, except, you know, for an initial annual deductible, whatever, a medical coverage that will cost you tens of thousands of dollars if you had to pay yourself. I mean, the, the charges by hospitals are outrageous, outrageous. No wonder people end up in emergency and can't pay. Yeah. Okay, so uh, retirement system, you know, is really a, a, a scam for the rich because once you hit $160,200 a year in annual income, you stop paying your payroll taxes 0.2%. All the rest of us pay all year long. If you're earning less than 160000 you pay your 6.2% all year long for your retirement, Social Security retirement. I'm talking about Medicare now. I'm talking about retirement. And if you earn more than that, you stop paying. Well, why should you stop paying just because you earn more than 160000 You should pay, too, the 6.2% all year long like the rest of us. So if you just raise that cap, that's called the cap, 160000 annual income is the cap. Just raise it and make everybody no cap, right? Everybody pays 6.2% on all their income all year long. And voila, what you got is so much money in the retirement fund, you can actually lower the retirement age from current 67. But what they're talking about is they want to raise it to 70 years. 70 years old, right. Now, that compares with full retirement, for example, in a number of countries around the world, in Europe and so forth, of 61 and 62 years old. You can retire full retirement. In a number of places in Europe, you know, Greece, Italy, so forth, I think 62, full retirement, is the highest. Maybe 63 in Germany, right? Russia, 61. At 61 years old, you retire, full retirement. Apart from how much you get and so forth, you know, the, the retirement age is... And in France, they're trying to raise the retirement age there, which is 62, full retirement. The government's trying to raise it to 65. <laughs> and everyone's in the street. All the workers are in the street there. Massive demonstrations going on. Because the French don't want to raise it to 65. Well, we're at 67 already, going to 70. Now, both sides, Republicans and Democrats, will say, Oh, we're not cutting Social Security. We're saving it by raising the rate, the retirement age to 70, which they won't do until after the next election. They'll pass a law, and it won't take effect until 2025, you see. So they won't have to take the heat at the next election. But they'll say, oh, we're saving it. We're saving it, yeah. And there's some talk that they want, at least the Republicans, want to get get rid of early 
Social Security at a partial payout at 62 years, you can, you know, maybe it's 63 now. I'm not sure, but uh, you can get a partial. I mean, Social Security uh, payroll, uh, I mean, retirement checks are pittance anyway. Uh, They were never designed to provide more than one-third of the income you need to live off of, you see. Uh, The other third was supposed to be your union pension, which you don't get anymore. They destroyed that, except for a few few unions and few industries. That's gone. Uh, Public employees still have that. That's gone. And then you're supposed to have one-third savings. Well, gee, you got like 60%. Uh, the U.S. population has no savings whatsoever. So, you know, retiring early at 62, when you got no savings and no union pension, maybe you got one of these IRAs or something with a few thousand dollars in it that doesn't give you anything. It's a retirement crisis in the U.S. Okay. And the French are fighting it. And in the U.S., you know, the unions are sitting on their butts. Yeah, they don't want to embarrass their Democrat friends, you know, top union leadership. That's the number one thing. Let's not embarrass uh, Biden and the Democrats because maybe they'll throw us a few crumbs. Let's not let's not make them upset by striking, you know, or making demands on them. That's the problem with the labor movement, union movement today. You know, it's tied itself to the apron strings of the Democratic Party to such extent it's immobilized itself uh, and can't really achieve a lot, uh, and therefore, you know, union membership, which used to be 40 years ago around 22 23% in the private sector of the labor force is now 5%. They're insignificant, irrelevant. And the more irrelevant they, they become, the unions become, uh, the more the Democratic Party doesn't pay any attention to them, and if they're not paying attention to them, the more the union leaders suck up to the Democrat Party, and it's a vicious circle downward spiral. Okay, that's another discussion. I'm not going to go there. But getting back to, uh, you know, the job numbers, you can't understand the job numbers without tying it into what's happening with the Fed and interest rate policies. And then the Fed interest rate policies, right, lead you to this contradiction of raising rates that doesn't really dampen inflation very much on the one hand, but raising rates which precipitates financial instability on the other hand. So the Fed's in this narrow, narrow area where if it raises rates more, it's going to trade off financial instability. And we see that with this. SVB, the Silicon Valley Bank. Yeah, I talked about a lot of this in another book in uh, 2015 called "Systemic Fragility in the Global Economy." Fragility means tendency uh, to have an instability event. It's like a precursor to instability, financial instability, financial fragility, where you have too much debt. And it may be not just corporate debt, but government debt, household debt. It applies. Fragility applies to all three sectors. Right? You have too much debt, and you can't service the debt. In other words, 
you can't pay the principal and interest on that debt. You can you can have levels of debt that keep going up and up as long as you can keep servicing it. You have the income flow, either from your wages or your income or the tax base or profits, in order to pay the principal and interest on the debt. Well, you can keep raising debt. The magnitude of debt alone is not the key. The key is whether you have the income, the resources to pay principal and interest that debt. If you do, then the debt can keep rising. But the problem is the debt has been rising both at the governmental level, you know, we've gone from five trillion to thirty-two trillion, tripling here coming. The debt level has been rising. The debt level for households has been rising. Credit cards, well over a trillion dollars, you know, I think when the total debt uh, I forget what exactly what it is, but I know uh, last year statistics just came out the debt total household debt uh, increased last year by was it two hundred and eighty billion dollars in one year? Yeah, eighty five billion uh, just in the fourth quarter of last year, October to December, eighty five billion dollars in total debt increase, two hundred. $40 billion for the year, which compares to the average of the previous 12 years, average debt increase of $47 billion a year for households. That's the average for 12 prior years. Now we're jumping to 200 and some billion in one year. And $85 billion of that just in the fourth quarter. Don't tell me that households are under tremendous financial stress. They're using their credit cards to survive because their wages aren't rising. No, wages aren't rising. Wages, hourly wages, you know, for non-supervisory workers are just a couple percent, two or three percent. If you throw in a whole workforce, you know, I think it's like four, four and a half percent earnings which is hours of work plus wages, right? Your earnings can go up if your hours of work go up and your wages don't, you see. So earnings aren't the same thing as wages. But earnings are up, what, 4.5% year on year here, last 12 months. Well, inflation is up 6.5%. So real wages are down about 2%. Well, if wages are falling, what do households do? They try to make up for it. With credit cards and debt. That's what they do. They make up for it. Or they take on more part-time jobs, which looks like the labor force is growing and employment is growing. You see, those are the solutions. Take on second and third jobs. Use your credit cards. One out of ten people now are using credit cards to pay for their housing. Yeah, one out of ten. Well, you know, households are up to their ears in debt. Their income is not rising to pay the principal and interest under that. Households are becoming more fragile, tendency to have a financial instability. Event. Same thing with the government, right? Government is cutting taxes. Government is increased spending, particularly war spending. Government debt is rising. Interest now is going from 
2019, we paid $350 billion a year. It's going to $600 billion this year. Just the interest on the debt. It's supposed to triple over the next decade, interest on the debt. So the government is becoming more and more debt-heavy. And it's cutting its revenue to pay for it by cutting taxes. So its ability to finance, to service that debt, is the bigger problem, not the level of the debt itself, although that's part of it. Same thing with households, I just described. Same thing with a lot, a lot of sectors in, in, in the corporate world, right? A lot of zombie companies are kept afloat with zero interest rates for a decade by the Fed, which allowed the banks to simply roll over their debt. These companies don't generate the revenue to pay the principal and interest and now the interest is rising, and the banks look at these zombie companies and say, and they say, "Oh, it's time to cut them loose. They can't pay this higher interest. They don't have the revenue stream to pay this higher interest, so we're just going to not lend them any more money and let them go bankrupt. You see, we're approaching this crisis point in government, in business, and in households where the debt levels can no longer be serviced. And when it can't, the result is bankruptcy. Right? Of course, the federal government never go bankrupt, just prints money. You know? But everyone else can. Yeah, everyone else can. And we're, we're slouching toward that crisis here, slowly, but steadily where we can't service the debt, the various debt, even at the federal government level. And they know that, and that's why there's this big debate going on behind the cover of raising the debt ceiling in June. You say, they're going to raise the debt ceiling. They're not going to jeopardize investors buying treasury bonds in the future. They're going to raise the debt ceiling. But the real action is what's going on behind the scenes to cut social programs, including Social Security. Even though they say, no, they're not going to do that because they'll come out and do it, raise the retirement age and say, oh, we didn't cut it. We saved it. Yeah, that's what they'll do. So this is the big debate. It's called austerity. Austerity is cutting social programs in order to bring down the deficit and debt, which this year is going to run $1.5 trillion again because we don't have the tax base. We've cut taxes $15 trillion since George W. Bush. The government has cut taxes, federal government, almost all of it to their rich corporate friends and investors. Trump did $4.5 trillion in 2017. George Bush did $3.8 trillion. Right. Obama, in 2008 and 10, uh, did $1.2 trillion, and then he extended the Bush tax cuts in 2013. That cost the government another $5 trillion. So Obama was the biggest, the bigger corporate tax cutter than even George Bush and even Donald Trump. Obama. Oh, Obama had a stimulus program in 2009 
of $787 billion, and then he turns around and agrees with the Republicans to cut $1.5 trillion, twice the amount in social spending, austerity, 2011. We are back to 2011, folks. We're back. Austerity is on the agenda. Cutting social programs is on the agenda. It's going on behind the scenes, under the cover of this debt ceiling BS. But it's on the agenda. Well, you cut spending. Guess what happens? Spending is two-thirds of the GDP. You slow it down. At the same time, you're raising interest rates, which slows it down. Yeah. Is there going to be a recession? We're already in it. Do bears live in the woods? I like to say do bears shit in the woods, but they always cut that out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Fiscal fiscal spending cuts are occurring, except for defense. That's going up, you see. In order to let defense go up, you've got to cut social programs, right? But that still leaves the deficit. So now they're going to cut Social Security to say that they're trying to balance the deficit, even though Social Security has nothing to do with the deficit. It's crazy. It's crazy. They, they you know, the elites, the political elites, running the system politically on behalf of the capitalists who are in the background pushing these things through their paid representatives. They're between a rock and a hard place economically here. And, you know, these things move very slowly, but inexorably. You know, and that's where we're moving. And then, of course, you know, on, uh, above that, geopolitically, uh, the system's in crisis, being, being challenged, uh, you know, by uh, Russia and, and China and, and some emerging market uh, countries that are getting, uh, you know, pretty significant in the global mix, India, Brazil, you know, and others. They're becoming important, more important. Globally, well, these countries, you know, are, uh, don't want to be uh, part of the uh, yes sir, yes ma'am uh, empire, whatever the U.S. wants. It doesn't want; they, they don't want to be part. They want to go their own way, to some extent. And uh, the U.S. says, "No, no, we're we're the imperial center. You shall listen to us, as you always have for since 1945." Well, the times are changing. As the song goes, economically, geopolitically, and the U.S. does not have the leverage, economic or political. You said still has a lot. Don't get me wrong; the empire is not crashing. No, no, the empire uh, is reacting and reacting aggressively and militarily more than ever before uh, to maintain, restore its lost hegemony. You know, or it's weakened hegemony, and the big targets are Russia and uh, and China, of course. You know, the others will will follow them, and you know, increasingly, you got you got countries that are uh, wanting to be independent from the empire. You know, not not just Brazil and India, but Saudi Arabia now too. The Saudis. Right? And other countries, yeah. What, what's happening is the U.S. empire is consolidating its its political power uh, and its economic base by 
restoring first its hegemony and control over its inner circle, which is Europe, uh, Japan, right, Korea, Canada, right? That's that's the uh, the core of the empire, right? And it's consolidating its political and economic control over those those economies and countries. At the same time, it's uh, preparing and challenging and provoking. It wants to provoke a conflict here uh, with Russia and and China over Taiwan, Russia over Ukraine, to precipitate a clash uh, before those those countries and economies become even more powerful. You know, do it early. And they're trying to entice them. Well, they enticed Russia into Ukraine. Uh, they're playing around, uh, poking China in the in the eye over uh, Taiwan. You know, they they want a conflict there too, uh, to uh, debilitate, uh, to slow down these countries' uh, growing influence, power, and independence as an example to the rest of uh, the emerging market world. That's what's going on, you see, geopolitically. The empire's not crashing. The empire's under increasing challenge, right? But the empire is striking back. Uh, the empire strikes back, right? The new hope sounds like Star Wars, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, who's the Jedi? Who's the return? Who, where, where's the Jedi going to save us? The Jedi of the, the new politicians. Gee, this is a cinematic metaphor I hadn't thought about, but, you know, it's, it's got some relevance. You can play with this and have some fun, right? The empire. <laughs> Talking about the U.S. economic empire and political empire. Wow. Well, you know, that's the picture here as of uh, early March with the financial system, with the Fed policy rate, with fiscal policy, U.S. tax and spending, austerity policy, right? And the financial sector beginning to show signs of fragility, SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, right? And interest rate policies. And, you know, where the job picture fits in this and the Inflation picture fits in this. You know, the Fed's old policy, they want to generate unemployment uh, to bring down wages and spending in the services sector, which is still hiring, see. That's their whole target. Fed, uh, Powell has said so. That's it. That we, they need more unemployment in the services sector to bring wages and spending down, and that will bring inflation down. Well, it's not doing it. Uh, and we'll see next week with the, the next Consumer Price Index report. Uh, what that means. So uh, n- next week we'll 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 try to look at the uh, Biden's budget proposal, which again is not a real budget, just a start point for debate and, and to make political points as well. Okay, so next week inflation and the budget and uh, more of the same. Okay, I'm out of here.